Lone Star Gun Talk is a Lone Star Gun Rights production. Original music and hosted by Derek Wills. Copyright Lone Star Gun Rights 2019. Welcome to the podcast. This is Lone Star Gun Talk, the official podcast of Lone Star Gun Rights. And I am your humble host, as always, Derek Wills. Thank you so much for being here. Today we have a very important topic that we need to cover, and uh, one that we've covered in the past, and one that is still no less important. Uh, And we're going to kind of go about it in a different way, because the state of Texas is going about it in a different way. Uh, so we have with us today uh, a guest that I'm very happy to have brought back. Uh, his name is Lee Spiller, uh, and he is a mental health advocate in the state of Texas. Uh, he is he is not a pro-gun advocate, but with mental health having the impact that it does on our right to bear arms, uh, you could see why I would I want him to have his input here. Uh, so, Lee, if you could, please tell us a little bit about yourself, about your organization, what you do, and uh, give us a little bit of background of who you are. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah, I'm the executive director of the Citizens Commission on Human Rights, Texas. Uh, we are an international organization um, founded in 1969 to protect and promote human rights and mental health. Uh, personally, I've done this in Texas since 1997. We've worked on issues regarding uh, involuntary commitment, informed consent for psychotropic drugs, uh, keeping kids from getting uh, killed in psychiatric facilities and restraints. And, um, you know, those are the, you know, they're they're just basic human rights issues. Um, You know, it's been a hell of a ride. And, of course, one of the things we've been uh, more concerned about in the last few years is people getting held against their will. And I'm talking about, in some cases, people walking in for, uh, you know, to ask questions about outpatient treatment and having the doors locked behind them. Or people being in the emergency room and saying the wrong thing, and the next thing you know, they're not allowed to leave. Right. And, uh, you know, most recently, of course, in the wake of these mass shootings, you have the... Um, you know, the understandable effort to do something about it, but unfortunately, Texas has decided to focus on um, a mental health approach, a threat assessment approach, and unfortunately, those are not um, infallible. Right. And we are more than likely to victimize people um, who have done nothing wrong and aren't going to do anything wrong. And, uh, you know... with an organization like yours, I, I would assume that uh, how this, you know, plays out against your Second Amendment rights also uh, comes into play, and uh, and it does for sure. Uh, guys, go ahead and please uh, chime in in the comments where you're watching from, and if you have any questions along the way for uh, for Lee, by all means, go ahead and put them in. We'll uh, we'll be having him on for the next thirty or forty minutes or so. Uh, so if you have questions, please ask them. Uh, Lee, you brought up the, the threat assessment 
in the state of Texas, and that is something that is very concerning to all of us, especially whenever you consider uh, states outside of Texas have already enacted what's you know commonly referred to as uh, red flag laws, uh, where somebody is just reported uh, at, by somebody else as being this person might be a threat, and then they have their firearms seized. Uh, from a mental health standpoint, this is kind of something where even people who fall on our side of the gun debate uh, bring up saying that mental health is is a is a big issue and that needs to be addressed. Of course, the vagueness of that statement tends to lead people to believe that the government needs to be the one to address that. And your your work with human rights as it relates to involuntary commitment, uh, has kind of shown that the government really shouldn't have that sort of authority, correct? Um, you know, it's it's one of those things where, um, unfortunately, what we're talking about, and that's what's been, you know, uh, just to kind of fill everybody in, following the shootings, uh, Governor Abbott issued executive orders, took certain actions, and then... Um, issued recommendations and then the house and the senate established select committees on mass violence and community safety and what's disturbing is you know crime is a law enforcement issue right and historically we don't arrest people who haven't committed a crime right or we try not to anyway right um, you know the, the logic is well you haven't you haven't committed a crime we can't arrest you so what the conversation has drifted into is, well, what do we do with people who haven't committed a crime yet? And that's dangerous territory. Uh, how do you hold someone who has committed no crime? And the answer is the mental health system. And much like uh, the proposed red flag laws, that depends on the word. You know, it doesn't have to be what the peace officer themselves has observed, it can be based on the word of any quote-unquote credible person. Right. So your mother-in-law, your neighbor, some doctor in a hospital that doesn't know you, mm -hmm. um, you happen to say the magic word, and boom, you're kept. And that already happens. And but now we're taking it to... No, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Uh, now we're taking it to a whole new level, and... Uh, were developing um, multidisciplinary threat assessment teams. In other words, you've got a team that is accessing fusion center data. We're looking at, boy, how do we how do we snoop people's internet activity? You know, look at their internet footprint. What are they saying on social media? Plus, we're talking about sharing um, at least some medical or mental health records. Fr frankly, we don't really know just how much data our uh, fusion centers are capturing. But we're talking about sharing all this information and having a team uh, in his testimony in both the House and the Senate, the head of the Texas Department of Public Safety, kind of talked about the composure of these teams and or composition of these teams. And, you know, we're talking about a field agent with a high clearance. We're talking about an analyst. We're talking about adding psychiatrists or psychologists to the team so that they can analyze this data and decide if you're dangerous. And then we're talking about adding local officials who have expertise in getting people committed. Right. That's quite uh, scary. You know, the UK some years ago adopted uh, 
fixated threat assessment teams. These were for people who were fixated on the royals or members of parliament. And, uh, you know, they would analyze data, then they could pick people up. And unfortunately, um, nobody knows how many people have been picked up. Nobody knows um, how long they're held. Right. And because it's not a criminal detention, you know, there's really no governing statutes as to how long somebody can be detained for mental health reasons because they're not detained by law enforcement. They're detained by hospitals or they're detained. Actually, by- no. In Texas, in Texas, uh, the the hospital or, you know, a credible person can call it in, but law enforcement has to make the call. Oh, wow. And while we, while we hope, you know, and that's on purpose. Um, prior to the early 90s, uh, we had non-law enforcement making the call. And there were some fraud schemes where you had uh, private security companies showing up at people's homes with official-looking paperwork, taking people into custody and take them to psych hospitals. So in 1993, the legislature went, no, you can't do that. It has to be a peace officer to make the call because, you know, hopefully that peace officer is a neutral party. He doesn't have a financial interest in taking you. He doesn't have a liberty interest in uh, not taking you. He's the fulcrum. And in an ideal world, that would would be good. Except Um, for the fact that law enforcement essentially follows orders. So if they're told, hey, this person has been called for a mental health uh, arrest, then they would more than likely just go ahead and follow through with that. At least that's probably uh, a, a biased on, opinion. But Yeah, it, well, it actually depends on the department. And um, some sheriff's departments have been incredibly good about insisting on making their own call. So, you know, you, you, could, have, you could have a deputy called to a psycho I mean to a emergency room and the doctor's going, No, I think this guy's suicidal and the deputy shows up and he talks to him and he goes, No, sorry, this guy doesn't meet the criteria and in that case the person wouldn't get transported. And that's that's a good protection. That's the way it's supposed to work. Um unfortunately not everybody does it that way. Right. Well but uh, yeah if 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 you get detained Essentially, you know, it is a 48-hour observation period, but here's where it gets tricky. It's 48 hours, not including weekends and holidays. And then that 48 hours, well, they have 48 hours to figure out what they're going to do with you. And then if the hospital wants to keep you sometime in that period, they have to file an application for an order of protected custody. And then within 72 hours after that, the judge has to make the call on whether or not there's probable cause to hold you. Uh, so just as a you know practical matter, you know a lot of the cases you know where we get called, that person ends up being a, being in the hospital five days. Uh, five days is really common. Wow. And that that's that's pretty rough because you take somebody who may have had a crisis going on. Um. Who knows whether they were dangerous to themselves or others, but, um, gosh, maybe their rental history isn't real good. Maybe it's the first of the month. Uh, they're late on their rent because they're in the hospital now. Gosh, you know, maybe they could be evicted. Maybe their car got impounded, and we know that's expensive. Um, maybe their work history's been tough. 
maybe they lose their job. So very realistically, you could take somebody who was having some trouble and actually put them in a much worse position. You know, they could end up homeless, jobless, no transportation. And, you know, it, it, it's something that uh, people really have to take seriously because, um, you know, it really does have an effect on people. Right. Uh, so let's kind of shift gears and let's talk specifically about the uh, Committee on Mass Violence and Community Safety, uh, this task force that Governor Abbott has kind of uh, created in order to make to give the appearance that he's doing something and, well, it could turn into something, but as of right now, it's nothing but a well, kind of a waste of time. But there have been some troubling things that have been stated uh by uh by uh legislative reps as well as uh people like the head of the dps uh regarding things uh, aspects about arresting somebody uh for mental health or, and the thing is it's it's not just about mental health it's really and they pretty much stay say this is their whole goal is to create like a, a behavioral threat assessment of individuals and see if they're just a threat. And, and you know, that goes hand in hand with mental health, but it's not exclusively mental health. And so if you kind of group both of those together, uh, you're essentially looking at a very Orwellian type of pre-crime uh, um law enforcement kind of like uh, the movie minority report where uh, people are being arrested without ever actually committing a crime and uh, one of the things that i found to be quite uh quite troubling and and i, I thank you for sending me uh, some of these transcripts because um you know it's a, it's a very long hearing and and some of it will make your eyes glass over but uh, when the head of the DPS says uh, what it can be is an indicator or pre-indicator of a possible action that would indicate that there can be an attack or a terror attack or a crime is committed. So a pre-indicator of a crime and then going in following that up and saying it can be a reasonable indicator that based on behavior observed that one would believe that a crime could be or they're thinking about committing a crime or an act of terrorism. Uh, this is this is this is very troubling that the head of the DPS is saying this openly in a committee of the Texas legislature. And I, 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 so I'm going to give the floor to you. you. If you could expand on this, tell people what this means for mental health. It's it's. And everything else. It's almost it's almost like lowering the bar on arrest because we're talking about you know potentially committing people or detaining people who actually who haven't actually done anything wrong, and uh, I don't even know that they have to be unsafe. You know, dangerousness has always been one of the key criteria for detention and commitment. Um, so yeah, you've got this situation, and then you've got the problem of. Um, you know, for Second Amendment groups, you've got the problem that in conducting a mental health detention, a peace officer can seize your weapons. They have discretion on that. So, uh, you know, effectively, you have a red flag law that's not a red flag law. Now, let's talk about if they do. And, and, and 
by the way, when you look at that quote from the head of DPS, he's talking about training there. Right. Um, that training is all under all, already underway. That was one of uh, Governor Abbott's executive orders was to uh, give peace officers refresher training on emergency detention. So it, it, it's a little bit concerning that uh, we're talking about expanding the use of emergency detention in Texas. And there's several reasons why that should disturb anybody, independent of your gun rights. Um, first, detained equals disappeared. Right? The records related to court-ordered mental health services are considered to be public records of a private nature. In other words, you can get them, but, but only under certain only under certain circumstances, and it takes a judge's order. Right. Uh, you can't just go down. You can't just go down to the probate court and say, "Hey, I want to go. I want to peruse uh, court records." Oh, you know, I had a friend who got detained. I want to look up his records. You can't do that. And that's actually that they should be disturbing to anybody. I, I was reminded of it after the Odessa shooting uh, because we knew that Mr. Ator came, you know, had spent time in the Waco area and had some trouble up there. I, you know, we went up to. Um, McLean County, you know, looked at the courthouse records, went to the sheriff's department to look at any uh, arrest re- reports or inventories or things like that. We're still um, trying to get the Waco Police Department to release records. But, uh, you know, I was standing at the window, at the records window at the sheriff's department, and um, to the left of the window is a sheaf of arrest cover sheets. Right. Okay. These are generated anytime somebody's taken into custody. And it'll give, you know, basically what type of crime they're being accused of, who the defendant is, who the victims are, witnesses, whatever. And it's a standard thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm thumbing through it just because I'm bored. And, you know, you'll see, you know, assault, family violence. Okay, there you've got the accused perpetrator's name. You've got victim's names. Okay, DWI, the names are on them. Aggravated sexual assault of a child, the names are on them. And then you get down to mental health. Psych evaluation. Well, you know it happened. You know a date. You know a case number. And everything else is blank. Okay. So... Even if you wanted to see who got picked up, how often it was happening, yeah, you could look at the cover sheet and see, okay, somebody got picked up, but that's all you know. You know, if it was a criminal case, you could look it up. You could see what's been filed. In fact, the same day, I went to Falls County to look at a case of a mother who uh, was apparently under the influence of psychiatric drugs and killed her child. Oh, wow. And, uh, in that case, because it was a criminal case, I could read the whole file. In fact, if I had had time, they would have let me actually look at the trial exhibits. But uh, that was a criminal case. Those open courts are there for a reason. They're there for your protection. And I always, when I see stuff like this, I think back to uh, Federalist 84, which is you know one of the Federalist papers that Alexander Hamilton wrote. And in it, he talks about, you know, ex post facto crimes, in other words, being arrested for crimes that weren't crimes when you committed them. Yeah. And habeas corpus and opens courts. And, uh, um, you know, he says this, and he's actually quoting Blackstone, but he says the observa- 
um, the observations of the judicious Blackstone in reference to the latter are well worthy of recital. To bereave a man of life, says he, or by violence to confiscate his estate without accusation or trial would be so gross and notorious an act of despotism as must once convey the, uh, at once convey the alarm of tyranny throughout the whole nation. But confinement of the person by secretly hurrying him to a jail where his sufferings are unknown or forgotten is a less public, a less striking, and therefore a more dangerous engine of arbitrary government. Right? That's what we're talking about. Right. You know, any place where you're held against your will is tantamount to jail. And it doesn't matter whether you call it a hospital. It doesn't matter whether you call it a jail. It doesn't matter if you call it the four seasons. If you're being held and you don't want to be there, you're being held there involuntarily, you're incarcerated. So I really don't care whether we call it a jail or not. Um, that's the first problem is we don't have open courts. So there's no way to inspect what's going on, make sure that the courts are doing a fair job. We flat don't know. We also don't have a reporting system for how many times this happens per year in Texas. Right. We get we get glimpses of it from time to time uh, because some police uh, department will say something about it. So Austin Police Department uh, put out a um, report back uh, just a few years ago, and they showed that their number of uh, uh, warrantless emergency mental health detentions had gone from around 1,250 to, I think, around 4,600 between 2007 and 2014. And we're like, wow, that's a big jump. And then we're like, well, we also had a big population increase. So we took their numbers and we did the math on the likelihood of being detained as a result of a police mental health call. And it turned out that your likelihood of being detained doubled. Wow. That's a pretty big deal. So, so um, Jen has a very interesting couple of questions. One is rhetorical, uh, but it it really does kind of put this whole thing into perspective. She says, why can't cops raid houses that they know are that they know are drug dealers' houses, even after receiving numerous calls from citizens about drug dealing taking place. The reason is because most police must, or the police must have probable cause, uh, and a phone call from citizens is not probable cause. Why then can a phone call be used to raid a citizen's house and seize their firearms, or as it relates to mental health, just arrest them and throw them into a mental health ward? Man, that is a really good observation. It doesn't make sense. Um, you know, in our effort to save people, you know, that's the problem. It's always been a real balancing act. You know, as a society, we want to save people from harm. But um, unfortunately, you know, and, it, and I think it points back to the pro you know, one of the problems with uh, mental health labels is that once somebody thinks you're mentally ill, then the next thing you know, they're thinking that you can't think for yourself or don't make good decisions. Right. I'll never forget back around 98, um, there was a gentleman from Canada who was sent down here for uh, brain injury rehabilitation. He was in a, an abusive facility and he escaped. And when he escaped the facility, instead of putting out an alert, they just discharged him. 
uh, a reporter, a member of parliament. You know, these people flew down to Texas, and we did a uh, press conference with them, you know, putting out a uh, call us if anybody saw him. And sure enough, within about two days, uh, we found him. He was ready to go back to his family. A lot of stuff had happened. And I, I first thing I did was take him to the doctor. And I took him to my doctor. And, you know, this is a doctor who was a family friend, who knew us, who was, you know, was very candid. He was a great guy. But I never saw, you know, prior to that time, how a no health, quote unquote, patient is treated. And the whole time, you know, this, this gentleman is able to answer questions. He's able to say what he thinks. He's able to say what happened to him. He's able to say what his preferences are. But the whole time, the doctor, instead of talking directly to the patient and getting answers, the doctor is talking to me. There's this assumption that you must not be able to think for yourself or that you're not a good historian of your own life. Wow. And I think that that's a dangerous assumption because it leads to, uh, uh, you know, detaining somebody just in case. Right here in the U.S., we don't we, we don't detain non-dangerous people, or we're not supposed to. We're not supposed to commit them. You know, we we don't get to lock up non-dangerous people who are capable of surviving in the community with the help, I mean, either by themselves or with the help of willing and responsible friends and relatives. That's from a uh, decision uh, called O'Connor versus Donaldson, where a gentleman who uh, wasn't dangerous, was actually held in a state hospital in Florida for either 11 years or 14 years. I mean, it was forever, you know, over a decade. Wow. And he wasn't a danger to anybody. He was being held for custodial care, essentially. And so the Supreme Court found, no, 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 we don't get to do that. But the problem is it is so easy to justify detaining somebody just in case. Right, and yeah, that's, that's essentially that's a what slippery slope. Yeah, that's essentially what everything, be it red flag, uh, the this hearing uh, about how the Texas Fusion Center is going to be uh, analyzing people's behavior to determine their threat levels. That's essentially what all of this is about: is uh, determining if somebody is going to do something. And the you know, ultimately, the the problem is that you can't prove that somebody is going to do something if they, you know, just based off of how they act. You know, if 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 it's one thing where you're uh, you you see somebody with blueprints to a bank, uh, explosive charges, things like that, you could pretty much come to the conclusion that this person was doing was plotting a crime based off of the hard evidence that was there. But if there is no hard evidence and you're just saying, oh, this guy acts weird, he acts in a manner that I don't like, therefore he must be a threat, you know, that is a, uh, that, that's, not, that's not a crime. You know, you're not, you're not well, actively doing anything that would be the commission of a crime. Well, and I think, you know, it's, it, I, you know, I think it's one of those things where, you know, that's not what anybody intends, but it's, I don't see how it could help but end up that way, right? It just turns into a just-in-case. Right. Um, so let's say you are detained. Um, now what happens? And again, y'all are a Second Amendment group. Well, 
if you get committed, you lose your Second Amendment rights, correct? Uh, that is correct. Cool. Now, if you were in a criminal case, you have the right under the Sixth Amendment to confront your accuser. Right. And based on, you know, the history of fraud and abuse in mental health in Texas, our legislature generally has been really wise and, uh, you know, made sure that the patients, you know, had the right to cross-examine witnesses in a commitment case. And they and their attorney could choose to waive that right, but that's the exercise of the right. Now, this last session, while so many of us were busy trying to put some sense into these threat assessment bills, because we already we already legislated that schools now have to use threat assessment teams. So um, while we're working on that, somebody slips a bill through that makes it to where the patient or their attorney can uh, waive the right to cross-examine witnesses. So, in essence, your right to guarantee, I mean, to uh, face your accuser is not guaranteed. And um, you're, um, there's no way to find out how that's going to work out because the records related to all that are public records of a private nature. Right. We don't know how that's going to play out. But something, you know, you're losing your liberty in a mental health commitment just as certainly as you would being put in jail, but you don't have the right, you know, your right to face your accuser is not guaranteed. And unfortunately, largely, I think we have, uh, you know, there's certain things like the Fifth Amendment and uh, uh, a number of things where, um, People look at them differently in civil cases, and a mental health commitment is a civil case. And the burden um, of proof is is substantially different than on a in a criminal case. So, yeah, it's uh, clear and convincing evidence. So, uh, you know, if look if you look at what lawyers write on it, I think they look at it as kind of like the seventy or seventy five percent standard compared to like the ninety percent standard of. Uh, beyond reasonable doubt. Right. Um, and you're kind of messed up from the word go, because if you are detained, let's, let's look at the difference between a, a detention and an arrest. If, if, if you're arrested, at some point, the cop is going to read you your rights, correct? That is the way they're supposed to do it, correct? <laughs> well, if you're detained, the cop has to inform you that within 24 hours, somebody at the hospital will tell you your rights. That cop can talk to you. That cop can question you. You get to the hospital. You have to be assessed within 12 hours. You know, a physician has to take a look at you. But you don't have to be informed that whatever you say to that mental health professional can be used against you in detention or commitment for 24 hours. So essentially, you have no Miranda rights. Right, and people are typically under the impression, at least, that there's going to be some sort of doctor-patient confidentiality, uh, of which there is none in, in there this is sort none. of case. Um, Correct, because it's going to show up in court if nowhere else. Right. And uh, so essentially, you've got a secret court, you've got a secret jail, you've got no Miranda right, you've got a questionable right to face your accuser, and uh, that's pretty flimsy, you know, and... and 
unfortunately, like I say, we don't know how many people are detained each year in Texas. Uh, Florida does have statewide reporting, and um, I think their most recent reporter reporting year, they had roughly 200,000 warrantless detentions under their law, which is called the Baker Act. And over 30,000 of those detentions were children. Wow. And in the kid cases, a lot of these, um, you know, they're initiated at school. And we're seeing some of that here. Uh, a month or two ago, um, there was a seven-year-old autistic boy in San Antonio that was taken out of school by police in handcuffs. And apparently it was a mental health detention. And uh, that was reported on. And I spoke to the reporter. I'm like, God, how often is this happening? And so they asked San Antonio Police Department. And so San Antonio Police Department looked it up. They did in 2018 over 1,300 warrantless mental health detentions of children. And that was up from a little over 1,100 the year before. Wow. Um, you know, and what was said, I mean, the dad, taught, you know, actually made it to the school and he videoed this. They wouldn't, they wouldn't just release his son to him. So he actually videoed with his cell phone, his kid being taken out of school in handcuffs, just saying, I want to go home. Wow. Well, can you imagine being seven years old and that happening? No, I, I couldn't. That's, uh... So we've got a lot of work to do on, you know, frankly, just the transparency of it. If we did nothing else but make the system transparent so that people can see how often is this happening, uh, what's happening to these people, um, I think it would be a real eye-opener, and I think it's necessary. Yeah, and not to mention, um, you know, there's, a, there's this huge stigma, uh, particularly in the gun rights community, uh, but there's this huge stigma with mental health overall. Like it, it's it's become this talking point of mental health, and it never goes beyond that. But you know what is, um, you know they just say things like mentally ill or mental health uh, needs to be addressed. But having a mental illness or having a less than uh, optimal mental health doesn't inherently mean dangerous. Right. That's correct. Well, and we can't even predict future dangerousness. Right. You know, in in the eighties, there was a death penalty case case here in Texas called Barefoot versus Estelle. And you know, in a death penalty case case, you bring in a psychiatrist to predict whether this guy is going to be dangerous in the future. And usually, the defense will have their own psychiatrist saying, "No, no, it ain't going to happen." But. uh there was a famous psychiatrist that just basically, you know, would uniformly testify that the defendant was going to be dangerous in the future. Therefore, he needed the death penalty. He did so many of those that his nickname became Dr. Death. And uh, it was bad enough that the American uh, Psychiatric Association uh, ended up writing an amicus brief in his appeal. And what they said was that um, when it comes to predicting long-term future dangerousness, psychiatrists get it wrong in at least two out of three cases. Oh, wow. Yeah. Then um, this past spring in the New York Times, you know, again, it, 
you know, one of the things you see with mass violence is uh, um, you see an urge to blame it on the quote-unquote mentally ill, which as a population is about as nonviolent as the rest of us. Right. I think they they make up, I want to say, 3% of violent crime. Really? If you eradicated, yeah, if you eradicated mental illness tomorrow, you drop uh, violent crime by 3%, boy, that ain't much. No, that's not, especially whenever you consider just how rare violent crimes in this country actually are. Uh, but that's a exactly. that's a whole other topic. Uh, and, exactly. And, but anyway, this psychiatrist writes in the New York Times, he says, you know, the idea, and he's talking in general, not just psychiatrists, but the idea that we can predict future violence is as yet an epidemiological fiction. Wow. Yeah, uh, and then more... Go ahead. No, no, no. I was just going to ask a question. You know, whenever we, when people, I, I think that the stigma that that is brought up is typically like your paranoid schizophrenics or your severely bipolar or manic uh, patients, which would be a, a minority of the entire mentally ill, quote unquote, for lack of a better phrase, uh, population. Uh, but even then, people who are even people who are just schizo- even people who are diagnosed schizophrenic or bipolar, they're also not inherently dangerous. Right, right. Dangerousness is its own animal. Um, can't predict it, um, but it sure is easy to attach to any population. You know, that's that's the problem with singling out a population. Um, you know, we see it in school discipline and school expulsions of minority kids. If you're a young African-American man, you're much more likely to undergo a discretionary expulsion than a white kid who does the same thing, right? It's it's, it's almost like inherent. When we single somebody out as different, we single them out as uh, less than. And once we single them out in as less than, that opens the door to all sorts of abuses, whether it's legal or whether it's physical. In fact, I was in uh, I was in South Africa in January, and uh, I was there to speak on these issues, which they have an incredible history. Uh, during apartheid, you had these quote unquote psych hospitals that just happened to be built uh, adjacent to factories and mines, and thousands of South African blacks were put in these. And, you know, they were basically used for slave labor. Uh, Some of them were also given shock treatment without anesthesia. Um, All sorts of things happened. And actually, our organization was, uh, I think we were the first to blow the whistle on that back in 74. And interestingly, the apartheid government's response, rather than correcting the problem, was to make it illegal to report on that. So we actually had to go through... uh, World Health Organization and UN and organizations like that because it was no longer legal to report on these abuses in South Africa. And uh, fast forward to this last January, you, you have people that were so damaged in those places that they will never survive in the free world. So South Africa has long-term psychiatric hospitalization where people are kept for years. And... Um, Just before we went over there, there was a case where a bunch of uh, 
South African psychiatric patients and apparently been farmed out to unlicensed group homes. Records apparently didn't transfer. Um, meds apparently weren't continued, like diabetes drugs, seizure meds, that sort of thing. And the families had just settled. And, you know, when I go speak somewhere, I always do some research on the area and see what's going on. And uh, I had read about it. But then uh, the day before I'm supposed to speak, I've got a day off. So we, we're like, hey, let's go out on a photo safari. And we come to this intersection, and there's a banner with the name of a psych hospital on it. And there's 144 white crosses by the side of the road. And then on the banner, it said uh, 144 dead, 21 unaccounted for. So we stopped and take, took pictures. And, uh, you know, on those crosses, they had written things like dehydration, rape, torture, health, dignity, human rights. Wow. And so, yeah, naturally, we took a lot of pictures of that. And it actually has... Uh, kind of become part of a presentation that I give for law enforcement on the, the importance of upholding people's rights because the line between abuse and liberty is that thin. It is paper thin. And just by being looked at as different, you can fall into that category where people feel like, oh, you know, he can't think for himself. It's okay to do this. It's okay to do that. And, and it leads to abuse. And it leads to injustice. And that's really part of the problem with the threat assessment stuff is that uh, we are characterizing people as different than the rest of us. We're characterizing them as a threat on, um, based on quote-unquote science that is still in its infancy. And in fact, a more recent article by the Houston Chronicle um, looked at this big threat assessment push and the reporter interviewed some experts and they're like, no, 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 no. You know, this is in its infancy. We cannot predict who's going to become dangerous. Or another guy talked about how, you know, this is just riddled with false positives. Well, if that's the case, and if we move forward with this, then we're talking about a huge injustice. Right. And we're talking, and we're still talking about people who haven't committed a crime. So the only answer becomes mental health detention and commitment or outpatient commitment. You know, something. I'm sorry, Lee, I didn't mean to interrupt. Uh, no, go ahead. There's just something that's kind of just uh, been, uh, just something popped into my head as we're, as, as we're listening to you speak on this. You know, the, the show on Netflix, Mindhunters, about the FBI task force that uh, essentially created the, um, they coined the term serial killer. Uh, they interviewed all of these convicted serial killers to try and establish why serial killers do what serial killers do. And, mm -hmm. you know, that was in the 70s. You know, that was around the time of, of Charles Manson. And to, to, to say that um, this science is still in its infancy when it's actually been going on for uh, 40 years... That, I mean, that's saying something because ultimately the way that I'm, at least what I'm hearing, is that science likely won't be able to accurately predict whether or not a person's behavior is an indicator of whether of their future acts, so to speak. Uh, you know, whatever diagnosis they they have, you won't be able to say definitively this person 
will actually become a danger to themselves or to society, or this person uh, definitively will not. Like it, it works both ways. Am I am I wrong in that, or or, or am I, no? Am I you're ju- not wrong. You're not wrong at all. In fact, uh, you know, psychiatry has been looking at the brain for over a hundred years, and they still don't know how it works. Particularly, they still, you know, number one. We don't have a way to define normal. Number two, there is no specific lesion or, um, you know, in spite of many, many brain brain scans and all these pretty pictures, you still can't point to one of those scans and go, oh, yeah, that guy's got schizophrenia. So, you know, it adds legitimacy taking all those pictures and doing that research makes it look like you're doing something. But if you're not making progress, so what? Right. If you, if, if, you know, it's kind of like, I hate to say it, but it's a lot like our uh, teen suicide prevention activities. We have invested a lot of money in teen suicide prevention since about, uh, and in military suicide prevention. You know, for, for a good 10 years, we've been asking people if they're thinking about committing suicide. And you'll have people trot out these studies saying, oh, that doesn't hurt. Well, I'm sorry. We put in these programs and suicides have gone nothing but up. Mm-hmm. So don't tell me it doesn't hurt. You know, at best it's ineffective. At worst, it's actually harmful. And uh, you know, I think the best thing we can do is treat people decently, listen to people, and uh, maybe we would be better off focusing on success, wellness, happiness instead of pathology. Right. Um. So I guess that there is. You know, you you take all of this, uh, the the data gathering from social media, the metadata collection from citizen cell phone use. Uh, you take any sort of thought that somebody has, and even if you were to somehow tap their brain, you I mean tapping their brain all you can record are their brain waves and that doesn't tell you what they're thinking I mean even mm-hmm. even polygraphs are not considered legitimate uh, or even as admissible as evidence in in most court cases because of the fact that you can't really look at the waves and determine factually a thousand percent if somebody's actually lying or telling the truth but you know I I guess I guess the question that I have for you is what should be done? Um, I, you know, I think that uh, a good example, uh, the Secret Service has done a good job of uh, pointing out corollaries, you know, things that correlate with uh, mass violence. And, uh, you know, correlations don't tell you everything, but they do tell you some things that you could do to perhaps ease things a bit. Uh, one of our objections to it is that there's important correlations that haven't been studied. You know, the presence, absence, or recent discontinuation from mind-altering drugs is a no-brainer. There are many mass shootings where the shooter was on the was under the influence or withdrawing from psych drugs. Many, and many of these drugs have side effects that are associated with violence. Uh, that's something that needs to be studied. And frankly, it wouldn't cost that much. It's not like we're not doing toxicology reports on suicides and mass violence cases. We are. Uh, For people who are still alive, that's a little bit trickier because they have a privacy right. 
Mm-hmm. My personal opinion is your privacy rights died the minute that first shell casing hit the floor. But that's just me. <laughs> um, you know, there's more study that needs to be done. And in the meantime, you can look at some common factors um, that lead to, you know, you can do things that instead of leading to the loss of liberty, it could actually um, improve society. And a good example is stressors. Um, you know, we're talking about job loss. Uh, relationship problems, uh, losing your home, uh, being accused of a crime, uh, things like that. It, it's it's the vast majority of shooters um, actually have experienced one of about five stressors. Well, as a community, we re- we really ought to be looking at oh gosh, so how can we, you know, what can we do to increase prosperity in our community? Is there moral education that we can teach our children that, uh, you know, not not handcuff anybody to any particular religion, but just a commonly held set of uh, behaviors that we think are decent, you know, telling the truth, treating other people the way you'd like to be treated. Um, what can we do as a society to improve conditions? And, um, you know, another another thing that I think would be really, really helpful because so many people who uh, get involved in both mass violence and family violence are under the influence of substances. And when I say substances, I'm talking about legal drugs, illegal drugs, prescription drugs are a huge one. Mm-hmm. When you're prescribed, well, I'll give you the antidepressants for, an example, for example, because we know that there is a... Uh, a warning for suicidal thoughts and behaviors for children and young adults. Uh, when we prescribe those drugs, we really, at this point, I, I don't even, th- you know, I think the state has to pre- prescribe what the language is going to be because people aren't being adequately warned. And so you get someone who, um, um, you know, maybe they're a gun enthusiast, maybe they drive a lot, whatever. Maybe they use heavy equipment. They ought to. They ought to know that uh, when they're prescribed that drug. Gosh, you know, maybe you do want to consider your safe storage options. Maybe you do want to uh, uh, hand your guns over to a friend or a relative that you trust until you see how this is going to affect you. Because that's the other thing we we can't predict. We we know that a certain percentage of people are going to experience side effects, but we can't say who's going to affect right. uh, experience side effects. So rather than trying to take away people's liberty, we could do a lot to educate people. You know, I've I've, I've had this debate with another section of an organization because there was uh, there was money um, budgeted this past session for a uh, public service announcement campaign on safe storage. And I think the attitude from a lot of the um, to a community has been, well, we don't want the government government telling us what to do or telling you that you should lock everything up so you don't have access to it when you need it. Well, okay, I get that. But who says to say who who says that the government has to write the script? Right. And you know, that's one thing that when I when I asked you this question, uh, I was uh, I, I don't want to say surprised, but I, I was I was pleasant I was uh 
I was jo- enjoyed. Uh, well, how do I say this? What's the English is hard. Uh, I guess I'm, I guess I'm now going to be reported for mental health because I can't speak anymore. I can't talk good no more. Uh, <laughs> I was I was uh, elated to hear you say that we as a society, we as a community, need to do this, and not the government needs to do this. The government needs to do that. And that is, you know, what you brought up just then about the government's public service campaign about safe storage. You know, that was what we were saying at the time was, look, this isn't the government's deal to take on. This is something that we as a gun community need to understand and need to push. And that's what we do uh, because, because yeah, it's responsible. It's, you know, it's. You know, you look at the rules for safe gun handling. It's right there. Don't be using guns under under the influence of anything that could affect your judgment. Um, Problem is, not everybody reads those. Uh, There's nothing wrong with reminding people of that. Personally, and and, you know, and it's not guns. It's it's that includes cars. That includes um, anything that could be weaponized. Anything that you could use to hurt other people. But Educating people is fine, and I'm I'm not against the government uh, funding that. But I think that when you have that discussion and when you decide what's going to be said or what's going to be done, everybody has to be represented. And that's really been another thing that has uh, really been bothersome, you know, between the governor's roundtables and the invited testimony in these committee hearings is that – you know, okay, during the governor's roundtables this time, Texas State Rifle Association got a seat at the table. Mm-hmm. Good. What about, you know, since we're actually dealing with basic civil liberties, human rights, whether you get to sleep at home tonight, don't you think it would be appropriate for human rights activists and civil rights activists to be at the table? But I, I didn't see Disability Rights Texas. I know I wasn't at the table. The ACLU wasn't at the table. Conversely, the Rutherford Institute wasn't at the table. I'm pretty sure y'all weren't at the table. And I know Guns of America wasn't at the table. So where's the rights representation in all this? The, there's, there wasn't. That was our big problem. You know, we we raised uh, we raised a lot of hell about uh, whenever he initially. Uh, launch the task force because the, there wasn't a pro gun at, uh, voice at the table. And then after we, you know, bombarded his office, they added Mike, not uh, Mike Cox of the TSRA. And, you know, in our, right. in our mind, it's like, okay, so you added more establishment to the, to the table, not somebody that deeply cares about, uh, the, the rights of, of individuals. But, um, you know, Lee, I, we've been going quite a bit. I know that you have, uh, uh, a prior engagement that you need to get to. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we wrap this up? Yes, there's going to be a hearing of the uh, Senate Select Committee on Mass Violence and Community Safety on December the 4th. And it's going to be discussing how law enforcement, internet providers, mental health providers, all these people can collaborate. You know, Facebook, Google, you name it. How how can they collaborate on uh, predicting and preventing mass violence? Uh, that is a big, huge privacy warning, a big, pu- a big, huge AI warning, a big, huge um, committee that if you care about your privacy, if you care about 
not being intruded upon, I, I would encourage people to come. And I don't, it doesn't matter whether you're coming from a uh, 2A perspective or whether you're coming from a civil rights perspective. Uh, people need to turn out. And, uh, you know, Gun Owners of America has been doing a great job of people uh, getting, you know, getting people to these hearings in different parts of the state. Um, I would encourage all groups and people from all angles to get to these hearings because uh, it's really important that uh, these committee members hear about this from all perspectives. That's really what's missing is, you know, instead of uh, instead of everybody sitting down, it's always the chosen few or it's the choir or whatever you want to call it, and it's time for regular people to speak up. I agree. Lee, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate you being here. Um, I hope to have you back very soon, okay? Great. Thanks a lot, man. And uh, keep getting the word out. All righty. Thank you, sir. All right, guys. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been uh, this has been a very interesting dialogue for sure. Uh, just to let everybody know, we have a $5 postcard uh campaign going on at the moment uh for five dollars we will send you or we will send dan patrick a postcard that says we won't support you unless you uh push constitutional carry next session uh link to that is in the show notes be sure to check that out until next sunday arm yourself with knowledge and share the ammo thank you guys